Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to A Fiscal your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, broadcasting to you from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, in the snowed-in southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. We had some uh, wintry mess start falling overnight into today. We're recording this on Sunday. It's converted to some icy rain-type shit and it's supposed to continue overnight to add another inch or so and into pretty much all day on Monday. So I cannot leave my apartment if I wanted to. I've been taking the dog out in the snow. I don't know if it's his first snow or not. I, I doubt it. I mean, he's two. I'm assuming he's been through a snowstorm before. Uh, but he really gets a fucking kick out of prancing around in the snow and the slush and the ice. And it, it really, I don't know if it's a dog thing, but Samson, when I had him, he loved shitty weather. Like that was the best time for him to go out and just take his sweet ass time peeing and pooping and sniffing everything. He loved being in the cold. He loved being in the rain. And Chance doesn't seem to like the rain so much, but man, he's having a fucking blast in the snow. So that's how it goes. All right. Uh, a few things. One, I apologize if my voice sounds a little weird. I had been out all of last week because I somehow managed to get pneumonia. Don't ask me how. I felt fine Sunday when we recorded. I felt fine most of the day on Monday. And then Monday night, I ended up not being able to breathe. So I went to the doctor on Tuesday, and apparently my left lung just was having like a, a party of bacteria just chewing on my lungs. Uh, so they had me on antibiotics. Last one was yesterday. I can breathe fine. I feel okay. But my voice still feels a little weird because, of course, I've been coughing because you're not allowed to take cough suppressants when you have pneumonia. You're supposed to cough all that nasty garbage up. Um, so my voice is a little rough. Hopefully you can't tell. That is the objective. A few podcast notes. We have a lot of them. First, uh, WordPress has released a new version of their editor and it is utter trash, but that's what we're using. So if you could do me a favor, if you notice anything wrong with the show notes, let me know because the editing experience for this episode was totally different than every other episode we've done in the past year and a half. And I just, I really hate their new editor. I don't know what they were thinking. I'm assuming it's geared towards people that blog as opposed to producing a podcast, but it's, it's atrocious. It's profoundly bad. Uh, so check our show notes and make sure that everything is good. Uh, the Apple podcast app I've been told has fixed how they show show notes. There was a span of time where when you went to them in the app, you did not get any of the links or the lists properly. I've been told they've reverted back to whatever they have before. So if you are listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can scroll up from the uh, the uh, what's it called the cover art, and you should see properly hyperlinked show notes that will give you every single story we talk about. There's nothing I talk about that I don't have a link to, uh, so it's all there. Uh, also, last week. I blanked on one of the apps that we're on where I was like, hey, leave me a five-star rating or written review on Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere else. It was Spotify. I completely forgot Spotify. We are on Spotify. There is a link on the uh, page, our website, fiscalmall.com. If you don't have it, you can subscribe to us on Spotify. So I apologize to all of our Spotify listeners that I forgot that particular streaming service. Uh, and if you don't mind please do me a favor. Leave us a five-star rating. We're at 193 ratings so far. We just need seven more to get to 200. And the final show note is that our fourth annual Eastway Food Raiser, where we raise money to get food for elementary school kids to help their families get through the Christmas holiday, is happening this Friday, December 14th. We will be raising money from usually 9 a.m. or whenever I decide to start tweeting about it until about midnight 
And then the following week, we order a whole bunch of stuff. I think I'm slated to pick it up on the Wednesday after that. Hopefully there won't be any snow on the ground. Uh, So just keep an eye on my Twitter space so that you can participate. It's always fun. We've done it for three years now. Every year it's gotten even bigger, and it's it's always fun. I just get a kick out of shit like this. Okay, if you have not already done so, please join the conversation online. The Twitter account for the web uh, podcast is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. The website also includes all of our show notes for all of our past episodes. It also has links where you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, a whole bunch of different Android apps. It's all there. Finally, if you'd like to become one of our financial supporters, the people that help pay for the hosting and everything else to keep this going every week, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. It's been a big week politically. I'm not going to go into the details. Instead, I'm going to give you links to everything uh, because there have been a lot of very major developments with the Russia investigation and the sentencing memos. Uh, Two separate memos were done for Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer. One of those is relating to the Russia investigation. The other one relates to the Southern District of New York, where they are charging him for the campaign finance violations and some other stuff. Uh, updated memo was done for the Paul Manafort case where basically his lawyers were colluding with the president in his false answers to the FBI. And an updated thing was done for Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. And I'm going to give you links to all of them. In particular, I want to thank, if any of you know, Andrew Prokop or Prokop, I'm not sure you pronounce his last name. It's spelled Prokop, but with a K instead of a C. Uh, He works for Vox. And they actually have, aside from posting their explainers, they have a very orderly, structured, like very good way of compiling documents. So it was super easy for us to get the actual filings in addition to the contents, which is nice. When I'm doing these show notes, you know, a lot of times you hear about lawsuits and everything else where the media talks about what's in it, but then never actually gives you a link to the source document. Uh, Vox has done a very good job of making sure you have the source material too if you need it, and I think that is fantastic. So thank you to that guy. We're going to give you links to all of those filings. Um, I lost my train of thought. There was a purpose to this. Oh, okay, so with Michael Flynn, uh, one minor note. You know, A lot of people have talked about the fact that there was a recommendation that he not receive jail time, and this was seen as a major thing. It's not. So if you if you read through the sentencing documents for Flynn, his offense is what's called a level four, and he's a level one offender, which means he has no priors. Under the federal sentencing guidelines, that means he's in what's called zone A. So for the vast majority of zone A offenses in federal criminal prosecutions, you get probation. That is the normal way of doing things. You do not go to jail. All of my federal criminal clients, uh, I've had some in Zone B, but pretty much everyone has gotten probation. Uh, so the reason why the recommendation for a no jail time is noteworthy is not on the actual effect it's going to have on the sentencing, but on the signal it sends to the president and others in the orbit of the Trump-Russia investigation They're basically saying, look, if you cooperate with us, we're going to recommend you don't do jail time, even though for most of them, they're not going to get jail time anyway. So it's just a little palace intrigue going on there. But we give you links to all that stuff. 
uh, Jim Comey, former FBI director, testified to Congress. So we're going to give you a link to the transcript of that testimony. There's nothing terribly substantive there, but it's long. Uh, the Washington Post has a story out today. So we're, like I said, we're recording this on Sunday. Uh, where the Russians were in contact with at least 14 different people in the Trump campaign back in 2016. That is an extraordinary amount of contact. You know, it's not unusual that you might have one or two foreign entities try and reach one or two people in a campaign, especially if you're running for president. Uh, But to have active contact with at least 14 people in the Trump campaign is wild. Uh, So, you know, no collusion hand wave, but just know that the Russians bought and paid for the entire Trump for president campaign. And finally, the human sack of shit, uh, John Kelly, is leaving as chief of staff at the end of the month. Thank God. Uh, I'm not going to bother going through the scumbag's greatest hits. I will, however, give you a link to the show notes for five or six episodes where you've talked about this guy. He is terrible. I think people are finally starting to realize he's terrible because they're assessing his tenure where he was utterly fucking incompetent at his job as chief of staff in addition to being a scumbag. Uh, But he's going to be gone at the end of the year. So that's the political roundup. Over in criminal justice fuckery, uh, we'll start off with court news because we have an opinion out of the Eighth Circuit that kind of reaffirms my point about how we let police slide on pretty much everything and it incentivizes bad behavior. There is a new circuit opinion out in the United States of America versus Polite is the name of the case. We'll give you a link to the opinion. And I'm going to read you some excerpts because it's it you know, you'll notice there's something a little uh, off here. So the court says, quote, Darnell Polite pled guilty in district court to being an unlawful user of a controlled substance in possession of a firearm. As a condition of his guilty plea, Polite reserved the right to argue on appeal that law enforcement officers violated his Fourth Amendment rights by performing a Terry stop without reasonable suspicion and arresting him without probable cause and that all evidence obtained and statements made by Polite following his detention should be suppressed. We find law enforcement officers had reasonable suspicion to conduct a Terry stop, and Polite's arrest was supported by probable cause. We therefore affirm the conviction. So that's the preface paragraph. In terms of background facts, uh, basically there was a Halloween gathering where several Crips were present at an apartment complex, The apartment ownership said, hey, can we get some additional police presence because there's some gang members here. Police came up, the 40 or so people dispersed, and Polite put something down in the grass about 30 feet away from the officer. Turned out it was a handgun. So that's the background facts. Now, I want you to listen to the court as it goes through the reasoning. Uh, Court says, quote, we find Officer Sundermeyer had a reasonable suspicion to conduct a Terry stop on Polite. Polite was loitering around on Halloween among a group of 20 other people, some of whom were known Crips gang members. Polite and the others were in an area where criminal activity was frequently occurring. When the officers activated the patrol vehicle's emergency lights, the group headed in different directions, some to the east and some to the west, some leaving the area and some stopping to talk to Officer Preston. Polite did not act in a manner consistent with the others. Officer Sundermeyer saw Polite kneel in front of a parked car and then stand back up a second later. Polite's conduct was sufficient to give an officer reasonable suspicion that something criminal might be afoot. The court continues. In finding the existence of reasonable suspicion to support a Terry stop of Polite, we have purposefully disregarded Officer Sundermeyer's testimony that he heard what he believed were two firearms hit the ground 
as well as his testimony that he knew Polite. Officer Sundermeyer's testimony is incredible and implausible when considered along with other undisputed evidence. Officer Preston was 10 to 20 feet closer to Polite, and he did not hear the sound of metal hitting the ground. Officer Preston described the scene of 20 people loitering and dispersing as somewhat chaotic. People were moving in different directions. People were talking. The notion that under these circumstances, an officer could hear from 30 feet away a 9mm handgun fall on the grass or be placed on the grass when Polite knelt down is simply not credible or plausible. It is even more implausible that under the same circumstances, an officer could hear a firearm wrapped in a bandana fall to the ground from approximately 40 feet away. Crediting this testimony was clearly erroneous. Additionally, on the night of the incident, Polite was walking in the dark with his head down while wearing a hooded sweatshirt. After Officer Sundermeyer handcuffed Polite, he said to a detective at the scene, subquote, this guy over here dropped a gun. Officer Sundermeyer neither identified Polite by name nor made an indication that he was familiar with Polite. It was not until an hour after the arrest when a crime lab technician asked Officer Sundermeyer for the suspect's name that the officers made any effort to identify Polite. A video recording captured Officer Preston obtaining Polite's name from Polite while Officer Sundermeyer was standing nearby. Officer Sundermeyer asked Polite for his date of birth and the spelling of his last name. This recorded evidence is plainly inconsistent with Officer Sundermeyer's testimony that at the time of the arrest, he knew Polite from prior contacts. The district court's reliance on Officer Sundermeyer's testimony that he knew Polite, while clearly erroneous, does not make Polite's arrest unlawful. And the court goes on from there to hand wave away the fact that the officer lied. The Eighth Circuit has just gone through all of those paragraphs to explain that Officer Sundermeyer is a liar, that he lied at trial, but they're sustaining the arrest and conviction anyway because they just want to. So the end result of this type of you know judicial yoga, where they twist themselves in all sorts of different ways, is that it incentivizes police misconduct. It continues. It's something where the officer knows, okay, yeah, I got a bench slap from the Eighth Circuit that I'm a liar, but guess what? The guy that I arrested is still going to jail, and the evidence is still coming in. The entire purpose for having the exclusionary rule is that you exclude evidence to stop the police from violating your rights, that when police lie, you don't get to you know, keep the fruits of their fuckery in evidence. So we give you a link to that decision. Basically, the Eighth Circuit has said lying is cool. They're going to talk about it, and they're going to, you know, it's kind of like politicians when they tweet about how bad Trump is but don't actually do anything. This is what the Eighth Circuit judges have done. They've talked about how bad it is that this officer has lied, but they've ensured there's no actual consequences for the lying. Uh, in general research news, the Cornell uh, University folks have done a study in coordination with Forward.us that basically says half the country has had an immediate family member in jail or in prison. From that study, it says, quote, nearly one in two adults, Jesus Christ, think about that, nearly one in two, that's half, in the United States has seen an immediate family member go to jail or prison for at least one night. According to a new study from Cornell University, one in seven adults has had an immediate family member behind bars for at least a year. For one in 34 adults, that relative has been behind bars a decade or longer. The study estimates that 6.5 million adults, one in 38, currently have an immediate family member incarcerated on this particular day. 
Among black and Native American adults, the numbers are higher. 63% have had a family member in jail or prison for a night or more, compared with 48% of Latino and 42% of white adults. More than half of black adults with a college degree have seen a family member locked up, compared with less than a third of college-educated whites. Three times as many black adults as white adults have seen a close relative imprisoned for a year or more, 31% compared to 10%. Low-income residents are also more likely to see their relatives jailed. More than half of adults making $25,000 a year or less have compared with a third of those making $100,000 a year or more. Looking just at people with relatives locked up for a year or more, it's about a quarter of the lowest income and 8% of the highest income residents. And it goes on from there. We're going to give you a link to both the story and the study. But this is this is obscene. Like This goes beyond just the disparities. It strikes at the point of what does it mean to live in a democracy? How can you be a free country when you have this many people being jailed by your government? Something is seriously, seriously wrong when half of the country has had a family member locked up. That is insane. Uh, We also have a survey from the Prison Policy Initiative. They do this every year, looking at contraband coming into jails. And what you find is that it's not coming from visitors. It's coming from jailers, the staff, the people tasked with securing the jail are, in fact, the ones bringing in the contraband. From that story, it says, quote, Sheriffs are increasingly welcoming video calling technology into their jails, with more than 500 local jails now contracting with video calling providers like GTL and Securus. Usually, sheriffs simultaneously do away with in-person visits, despite studies showing that they are crucial for maintaining family bonds. To ward off claims that this is just a money-grabbing scheme, sheriffs invoke the argument that doing away with face-to-face visits increases the safety and security of the facilities, presumably by stopping contraband brought in by jail visitors. This argument is demonstrably false, and yet jail administrators repeat it at every possible opportunity. Sheriffs raise the specter of visitors loaded down with drugs, somehow passing them through physical searches and through body scanners and through glass partitions, with the only solution being a move to remote visitation technology. For one thing, the scenario is implausible, given that in-person jail visitors are virtually always separated from their loved ones by a glass window. But more importantly, by blaming contraband on in-person visitors, sheriffs distract from a far more likely source, jail staff. I reviewed news stories of arrests made in 2018 of individuals caught bringing contraband into jails and prisons. What I found wouldn't surprise any person in jail, but it's a truth that sheriffs prefer to avoid. Almost all contraband introduced to any local jail comes through staff. This year alone, 20 jail staff members in 12 separate county jails were arrested, indicted, or convicted on charges of bringing in or planning to bring in contraband. In fact, most of the jails in question had recently eliminated in-person visits in favor of video calls, a technology which, again, is supposed to reduce contraband. We'll give you a link to that story. They also have a helpful table of the stories that talk about people being arrested for bringing contraband into prisons in the fashion similar to our show notes. So we'll give you a link to that. In the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, we're going to start out in Alabama. And this particular story is one of three this week that were the impetus for the particular show title, Killing the Good Guy with a Gun. And it starts out in Hoover, Alabama, where there was a shooting at a mall, and a guy who served in the Army, his name is Emantic Fitzgerald Bradford Jr., he was 21, he was shot dead. 
Now, before we get to the story, the thing that you need to know is that as far as background, the police initially identified Bradford as the mall shooter. Then, a few days later, they said, okay, he wasn't the shooter. He was one of two people involved in a fight, and that was how he got shot. Well, you actually read this particular story, and you will find that both the initial narrative and the amendment to the narrative were both bullshit. Bradford was, in fact, one of the good guys with the gun and was shot dead by Hoover police for sport. From the story, it says, quote, A black man killed by the police in an Alabama mall in November was shot three times from behind, according to a forensic examination. The finding, announced in a news conference on Monday, was seen by the man's family and lawyers as evidence he was running away and posed no threat to the officer who shot him. Amantic Fitzgerald Bradford Jr., 21, was fatally shot in the middle of a panicked crowd at the River Chase Galleria in Hoover, Alabama, on November 22nd, as officers responded to reports of gunshots on Thanksgiving night. Witnesses said Mr. Bradford, who was legally carrying a handgun, was directing shoppers to safety. But the authorities publicly identified him as the gunman, an initial misidentification they retracted a day later. The shooting and its aftermath have ignited protests in Hoover, a predominantly white suburb about 10 miles south of Birmingham. The forensic examination indicated Mr. Bradford was shot in his back, the back of his head, and the back of his neck. The police have not released video of the shooting. In a statement on Monday, the Hoover police chief, Nick Durzis, said the law enforcement authorities had advised them that releasing the video too early could compromise the investigation. What fucking investigation? You have witnesses who've already told you that he was helping direct people to safety, and you shot him dead. There's nothing else to fucking investigate that could be compromised by the video of y'all doing it. You just don't want the public fallout. So let this be a reminder that I've said several times on this podcast. The initial police narrative, the vast majority of the time, is bullshit. It's either a combination of lies misinformation, or just not knowing what the fuck they're talking about. In this case, they were completely fucking wrong, and they killed a perfectly innocent human being just because they could. So that's out of Alabama. In California, out of Sacramento, we find out that the police are on the side of the neo-Nazis. Surprise. From that story, it says, quote, California law enforcement pursued criminal charges against eight anti-fascist activists who were stabbed or beaten at a neo-Nazi rally while failing to prosecute anyone for the knife attacks themselves. In addition to the decision not to charge white supremacists or others for stabbings at a far-right rally that left people with critical wounds, police also investigated 100 anti-fascist counter-protesters, recommending more than 500 total criminal charges against them, according to court filings from civil rights attorneys. Meanwhile, for men investigated on the neo-Nazi side of the brawl at the state capitol, police recommended only five mostly minor charges, none related to the stabbings. Lawyers produced new records this week as prosecutors in Sacramento prepared for a hearing in their long-running case against three anti-fascist counter-protesters who have been charged with rioting and assault. For two of the counter-protesters facing potential prison time, law enforcement officers surveilled their social media activity and cited their left-wing politics and affiliation with Chicano and indigenous rights groups as evidence against them, the police reports revealed. No surprise there. Uh, in Thousand Oaks, California, you might remember this was the site of the uh, massacre at the Borderline Bar and Grill back at the beginning of November. And one of the officers, Sergeant Ron Helis, 
went in to try and stop the gunman, he was shot dead. Well, this is the second story that inspired the title for this particular podcast episode because an autopsy revealed that he was, in fact, killed by a fellow police officer. From that story, it says, quote, Officials said it has been determined that Sergeant Ron Helis, who was killed in the shooting at Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, sustained a shot to his heart by a fellow responding officer, as well as other gunshot wounds from rounds fired by the gunman. An autopsy revealed Helis was struck by six bullets, five fired by the gunman, and one bullet fired by a California Highway Patrol officer. Officials said the five shots Helis sustained from the gunman were survivable, but the CHP officer's bullet is believed to be the one that killed him. Authorities gave updates on their investigation at a news conference on Friday. Subquote, these bullets caused serious injuries, but survivable injuries, Chief Medical Examiner Chris R. Young said as he's describing the uh, five similar caliber bullets that the gunman fired. Uh, but then he talks about the sixth bullet that was actually recovered at the scene at the time was the one that went straight through Helis's heart. That bullet, Young said, was confirmed by FBI analysis to be a rifle round fired by a CHP officer who went into the bar with Helis. So those are out of California, the good guy with a gun killed by his fellow police officers. Out of Colorado in Westminster, we have another police officer getting a slap on the wrist for rape and the media using euphemisms to try and explain it. From that story, it says, quote, a former police officer in suburban Denver has been sentenced to 90 days in jail for forcing a woman to engage in sex acts as he took her home from a hospital. You, you just love that phrasing, forcing a woman to engage in sex acts. Well, what you find out is that he raped her. But the story continues, quote, the Denver Post reports 41-year-old Curtis Argenbright, who worked for the Westminster Police Department, was sentenced Thursday and must register as a sex offender. Prosecutors say that on August 24th of 2017, Argenbright was on duty and driving a woman who had been released from St. Anthony North Health Campus in Westminster when he stopped at about 1.30 in the morning. The 36-year-old victim told investigators that Argenbright assaulted her while she was handcuffed. Argenbright forced her into intercourse on the front bumper of his police car. We call that rape when you force someone into intercourse. But we'll give you a link to that story. Uh, out of Washington, D.C., the Department of Justice has confirmed that a senior Justice Department official sexually assaulted at least one person and sexually harassed several others, but allowed him to retire and never identified who he was. From that story, it says, quote, a former senior Justice Department official allegedly sexually assaulted one woman who worked under him at the department and sexually harassed several other subordinates, according to a report from the Department of Justice's Inspector General released on Tuesday. The two-page report says that the Inspector General's investigation substantiated that a senior official who worked in the DOJ's Office of Justice Programs made repeated sexual advances toward one subordinate and ultimately sexually assaulted her. The report further stated that the official, who is not named, pressured one subordinate into a sexual relationship in exchange for a promotion and harassed two other subordinates. The report said that the official in question has since retired from his position and that investigators declined to bring criminal charges. Subquote, the Department of Justice does not tolerate sexual harassment, abuse, or assault in the workplace in any form. As the findings stated, the official accused of this conduct is no longer employed by the department. DOJ spokeswoman Carrie Kupik told The Hill. Hey, guys, when you don't prosecute it, 
you're tolerating it. You allow it to happen. You're allowing this guy to retire. He gets the benefit of never even being named. The media doesn't even know who he is. So you can't even give him the social opprobrium that he deserves for sexually assaulting somebody. And it's going to happen again because the next person is going to know they're probably not going to be assaulted as long as they retire before it all comes out. So that's in D.C. Out of Florida, we got a few stories out there in Miami. The taxpayers are going to be on the hook for a $1.3 million settlement to Taiwan Smart. Uh, He was the guy who was falsely accused of murder and spent 19 months in jail, but ended up not doing it. From that story, it says, quote, In 2014, Miami New Times writer Terrence McCoy found 15 Miami men who'd been accused of murder on the A&E TV show The First 48 and later walked free because they had been wrongfully accused. Taiwan Smart was one of those men. In 2009, Smart contacted the city of Miami Police Department to say two of his friends had been gunned down. But with A&E cameras rolling, MPD officers became convinced it was Smart who had shot his friends to death in Little Haiti. He was jailed for 19 months. In fact, Smart committed no crime. And now, after roughly five years of legal fighting, the city of Miami is poised to hand Smart a whopping $1.3 million legal settlement for his ordeal. The city commission is slated to approve the gigantic award at its next meeting on December 13th. The story goes from there, but essentially what you find is that the city fought trying to resolve the case. They lost. They appealed. They lost the appeal. They appealed again. They lost that. And essentially what would have been an original uh, jury verdict of $708,000 has now ballooned to $1.3 million to factor in the post-trial proceedings and attorney's fees and everything else. These guys are fucking morons. Uh, So that is in Miami, in Monroe County, the Florida Keys. What you find is ICE trying to deport American citizens again. We've talked about that before, back on episode 61 from that story. It says, quote, Peter Sean Brown turned himself in for a probation violation in April after he tested positive for marijuana. He figured he'd do a little time in jail and then go back to his life in the Florida Keys. But Brown, 50, a United States citizen who was born in Philadelphia and raised in New Jersey, ended up on the fast track to deportation to Jamaica, a country he had visited for just one day while on a cruise several years ago. Brown, who is represented by the American Civil Liberties Union and other agencies, is suing Monroe County Sheriff Rick Ramsey, saying his constitutional rights were violated when he was locked up on request of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement for weeks while law enforcement worked to send him to Jamaica despite his repeated protests that he was a U.S. citizen. He told every jail employee that he was a U.S. citizen born in Philadelphia, but the only response he got was mockery. One guard talked to him in a Jamaican accent, calling him Mon, while another sang to him the theme song from the 1990s television sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which mentions the main character being from West Philadelphia. Three weeks later, as Brown sat before ICE agents in Miami, a friend sent ICE a copy of Brown's birth certificate, and he was finally released. But his attorneys say he remains traumatized by the experience and the fear of winding up in a Jamaican prison. Yeah, no shit. Can you imagine being locked up for the better part of a month? You were born here and no one in the government believes you because they're a bunch of fucking morons determined to deport every single person they possibly can. Go back to episode 61. We talked about this where The Intercept had a study showing that ICE routinely arrests and deports American citizens. 
And also, let me, as a sidebar, ICE detainers should be unconstitutional. So these are the requests where when someone is arrested by a police department or a sheriff's office, they notify ICE, and ICE sends a notice back saying, hey, there's a pretty good chance this person's in the country illegally. Even though they're allowed to be released, hold them for an additional 48 hours so we can send someone down there to pick them up. That should be unconstitutional. When it's your time to get out, it's your time to get out. You shouldn't be held for an additional two days so the federal government can get out, get off its ass to try and prosecute you. And in this particular case, they're trying to prosecute someone who is totally fucking innocent of any immigration-related crime. Uh, so that's out of Florida. In Georgia, we have uh, a very Georgia-esque case in Grantville. Uh, quote, a former Grantville police officer is behind bars in Coetta County on charges of making false statements to law enforcement officials. Uh, Officer James Christopher Holmes is also wanted on a felony arrest warrant in Pike County on one charge of incest. Uh, Holmes turned himself into the Coeta County Jail Monday morning, stated Grantville Police Chief Steve Whitlock. Uh, According to Special Agent Fred Wimberly with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI was requested by the district attorney with the Griffin Judicial Circuit to formally investigate Holmes on alleged charges of incest. The incidents reportedly took place in Pike County. Uh, Whitlock was also notified of the GBI's inquiry and said he suspended Holmes that day with pay. We call that a paid vacation. So you fuck a family member, you get paid vacation while the government does its thing, uh, pending the outcome of the investigation. So we will give you the link to that story. In Illinois, out of Chicago, we've got the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this particular case, that involves an officer beating a teenager over the head with handcuffs repeatedly as he's restrained by other officers. From that story, it says, quote, a Chicago police officer now faces a use of force investigation thanks to a video that appears to show him beating a teenager over the head with a pair of handcuffs. Police say 16-year-old Skylar Miller matched the description of a robbery suspect. Subquote, we had a crew of young individuals going around on the red line robbing people, and he was identified as a possible suspect with that particular group. Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson told WBBM. So that's why they were approaching him. Two Facebook videos taken at the scene revealed what happened next. In one clip, two officers attempt to detain Miller, who protests. The officer tells Miller to relax. Miller says he didn't do shit. Uh, Miller is clearly belligerent and refuses to go with the officers. The other video appears to pick up soon after. At that point, Miller is being held by two officers, while a third repeatedly hits him on the head with a pair of handcuffs. Once Miller is on the ground, a fourth officer joins the effort to detain him. Eventually, the cops help Miller up off the ground and lead him up an escalator. Miller was taken to the police station. Police tell WFLD he's being charged with resisting arrest, uh, but he has yet to be charged in connection with the robbery. Subquote, by the time the dust settled on that particular robbery, the victim had wandered off. I shouldn't laugh because this shit's not funny. But look, if you're robbed and you go through the hassle of reporting it to police, you're not going to fucking wander off. So I'm inclined to think no robbery actually happened. But that's out of Illinois in Indiana in Elkhart. We have the first rule of Fisk again. Remember, the first rule is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, Two Elkhart police officers who punched a handcuffed man in the face more than 10 times will face criminal charges. 11 months after the fact, and only after the South Bend Tribune requested video of the incident as part of an ongoing investigation with ProPublica. The two officers, Corey Newland and Joshua Titus, will be charged 
charged with misdemeanor counts of battery, the police department announced Friday. Both have been placed on administrative leave pending the case's outcome, department spokesman Sergeant Travis Snyder said. The department also released video of the beating after 5 p.m. Friday, more than three weeks after the Tribune requested a copy. Five months ago, the two officers were disciplined for this incident, but they received only reprimands rather than suspensions or possible termination. Speaking to the city's Civilian Oversight Commission in June, Police Chief Ed Windbigler said the officers used, subquote, a little more force than needed with the suspect in custody and, subquote, just went a little overboard when they took him to the ground. But Winbigler offered no other details, saying nothing of the two officers punching the man in the face. The video was recorded in the police station's detention area after the January 12 arrest of Mario Guerrero Ledesma, who was 28 at the time. The footage shows Ledesma in handcuffs sitting in a chair while Newland, Titus, and two other officers stand nearby. At one point, Ledesma prepares to spit at Newland, and the officer warns him not to. As Ledesma spits, Newland and Titus immediately tackle him, and the back of his head strikes the concrete floor. The two officers then jump on him and punch him in the face repeatedly, while one calls him an expletive. So that's the story of the actual beating and the video. But you will also be shocked, I know, to find out that the police chief lied to the civilian oversight folks about the officers that were involved. From that section of the story, it says, quote, The Tribune and the nonprofit news organization ProPublica have been investigating criminal justice in Elkhart County, looking at police accountability, among other issues. A Tribune reporter requested the Ledesma video after noting a disparity between Winbigler's public description to the Police Merit Commission, the city panel that exercises civilian civilian oversight, and what the chief wrote in personnel records. In a June 12 letter of reprimand to Newland, Winbigler wrote, subquote, I completely understand defending yourself during an altercation. However, striking a handcuffed suspect in the face is not acceptable and will not be tolerated. We cannot let our emotions direct our reactions or overreactions to situations like this. At the June 25 meeting of the Police Merit Commission, J- Chairman James Rykoff asked Winbigler if anyone had been injured in the incident. Subquote, no, Winbigler said. Winbigler, explaining why he opted for only reprimands for the officers, then told the commission that Titus, subquote, had no previous complaints, and with respect to Newland, subquote, here again, he had no other incidents in his file, so this is his first incident of any type of force. For Newland, the reprimand was not his first disciplinary incident. It was his ninth, according to personnel records gathered by the Tribune and ProPublica. After being hired in 2008, Newland was suspended six times and reprimanded twice in his first five years. So we give you a link to that story. There's a lot more to it, but that is in Indiana. Out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice in New Orleans, we have the third story that prompted the title for this particular episode, where a federal agent was shot for sport by Louisiana State Police. From that story, it says, quote, A federal agent from Kentucky was shot twice by a Louisiana State Police trooper early Sunday, December 2nd, while he was heading back to his hotel from the French Quarter. Uh, the New Orleans lawyer Elizabeth Carpenter said her client, who was visiting New Orleans with plans to depart on a cruise with his wife, was shot in the stomach and the knee as he headed through an empty parking lot around 2 in the morning on his way back to the downtown Holiday Inn on Loyola Avenue. 
Avenue. The U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command confirmed that the man Carpenter identified as her client works for the division as a civilian special agent. The Times-Picayune is not naming the wounded man because he has not been charged with any crime. The man was visiting New Orleans for the first time when he noticed juveniles following him on his way back to the hotel. Uh, Carpenter said her client was frightened because he was being followed and was possibly lost. At one point, he started running, then pulled out a gun he had with him. He then felt two shots to his stomach and his knee. Carpenter said her client did not see who shot him and did not hear or see any warnings before being shot. In a news release, Louisiana State Police said an on-duty trooper in the area observed a person with a weapon around 3 o'clock in the morning, providing a slightly later time frame than Carpenter. The trooper fired his service weapon, striking the person, and was not hurt himself, according to the release. When asked to comment on Carpenter's client's account of the shooting, Louisiana State Police spokeswoman Melissa Mady said only that the investigation was, subquote, active and ongoing. The Louisiana State Police Bureau of Investigation is investigating the case. The injured man did not realize a trooper had possibly fired the shots, Carpenter said, until three troopers arrived at his hospital recovery room with a warrant to get a swab of his DNA. Carpenter said the troopers would not answer her questions about why they sought her client's DNA. Jesus Christ. So you shoot a federal agent, you don't announce yourself before you do it, and then you try and get DNA while he's in the hospital recovering. As he's in Louisiana, in New Orleans, planning to go on vacation with his wife on a cruise, and instead he's in surgery having his stomach repaired and seeing if he'll be able to walk one day again. So that's out of Louisiana. In Michigan, in Wayne County, we have some civil asset forfeiture fuckery. Uh, And in that story, it says, quote, A Detroit woman is suing Wayne County, Michigan, after police seized her car for possession of $10 worth of marijuana under the state's civil asset forfeiture laws. Crystal Sisson alleges in a federal civil rights lawsuit filed Wednesday that she was pulled over by Wayne County Sheriff's deputies this July after they surveilled her going into a Detroit medical marijuana dispensary where she had bought a small amount of marijuana for $10. After discovering the marijuana, which is decriminalized in Detroit, the sheriff's deputy cited her for, subquote, illegally occupying a place where controlled substances are sold and then seized her 2015 Kia Soul. Under civil asset forfeiture laws, police can seize property, cash, cars, even houses suspected of being connected to criminal activity. Law enforcement groups say it is a vital tool for disrupting organized drug trafficking and other crimes, but civil liberties groups say it has too few protections for innocent property owners and far too many perverse profit incentives for police and prosecutors. Side quote, no shit. Uh, story continues, quote, to get her car back, Sisson had to pay the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office $1,200 to settle the forfeiture case, a typical practice in the county. Sisson's lawsuit, however, argues that the seizure and settlement was unconstitutionally excessive. Godspeed to that woman. I'll note the Supreme Court is currently considering Tim's versus Indiana, uh, which is a very similar case. The guy's SUV was seized because I think it was heroin in his case. Uh, they took his car. So we'll give you a link to that story. Out of New York, in New York City, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. 
reported uh, from that story. It says, quote, the chaotic arrest of a mother at a Brooklyn benefits office Friday drew condemnation from city council speaker Corey Johnson and council member Steve Levin on Sunday, both of whom said they are appalled and demanded answers. The video shows a woman on the floor of a human resources administration office surrounded by officers who appear to be trying to yank an infant from her arms. I'm going to pause. It's actually worse than it sounds. The video, I've watched it. You have an officer like repeatedly grabbing the shit out of this one-year-old. I'm surprised the kid didn't have any broken bones. Uh, But we're going to give you a link to the story that will have the video in it. Uh, Story continues, quote, At one point, an officer produced a taser and pointed it at the crowd. Sidebar, that's even worse than it looks. It's similar to, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Bad Boys 2, where Will Smith's character pulls out the gun and is pointing it around at the Klansman. It's basically what this officer was doing with the tasers, pointing it at every fucking buddy in the office. Uh, Story continues, A police spokesperson described the incident as, subquote, troubling. Subquote, video images of the incident in the 84th precinct are troubling, and the event is under review by the NYPD and HRA police. NYPD Sergeant Jessica McRory said in an emailed statement, subquote, this review will include examination of all available video of the incident. Levin called for a top-to-bottom review involving interviews with all witnesses. Subquote, how does it get to that stage? Levin said in a phone interview, where's the de-escalation? It wasn't there. So we'll give you a link. Again, all of this was found out because it was recorded and uploaded to Facebook. That's how people knew about it. And the video is even worse than it sounds in the news. Out of SOTUS, New York, I didn't know if I should count this as a New York story or a Texas story. We decided to put it in New York. Uh, But a Texas police chief and a Texas cop have both been indicted in a double murder of a SOTUS, New York couple. From that story, it says, quote, Braun Bolar, one of three people arrested in connection to the murders of a SOTUS couple in October, uh, pleaded not guilty in court on Monday morning. Bolar was extradited from Moore County, Texas, to answer to a conspiracy charge and the investigation into the October 22nd killing of Joshua Niles and Amber Washburn. Timothy Dean and his wife, Charlene Childers, are also charged with murder in the case. Childers was in a custody battle with Niles, her ex-boyfriend, over their two children. Bolar is accused of renting a car for Dean and discussing plans for the murders while inside Dean and Childers' garage. Niles and Washburn were shot dead outside their Carlton Street home. Dean served as the police chief for the Sunray Police Department, where Bolar happened to be an officer. Dean was fired earlier this year. So if you get into a custody dispute with police, just know that they can shoot you dead. Uh, Out of North Carolina, in Raleigh, we have a trooper with the State Highway Patrol who decided to just out himself as a racist just because. From that story, it says, quote, a veteran trooper with the NC State Highway Patrol has been placed on administrative duty while the agency investigates comments on social media about President Donald Trump, police beatings, African-Americans, the media, and more. Subquote, the State Highway Patrol is aware of the incident in question and is conducting an internal investigation, Sergeant Michael Baker said in an email to the News and Observer on Thursday afternoon. Sergeant Jonathan K. Whitley, a member of the Highway Patrol since 1996, apparently fell under scrutiny after a lengthy post on Instagram by the user jkwhitley2608. The writer of the post said he wanted to share, subquote, just a few random thoughts before going to bed. The post said he would, subquote, never vote for a Democrat for any office for any reason. 
and that he hates the public education system and the subquote indoctrination centers known as college campuses. The Post also says that 99% of the media are subquote anti-American liberal supporting communists and I can't stand them. He didn't own a slave, the Post says, adding, subquote, I owe you nothing, including your HUD housing and EBT card. And it goes on from there. Basically, all of the stereotypical Trump supporter bullshit that you've seen on social media, this particular state highway patrolman happens to believe and decided to share on Instagram. Uh, it does help when these folks self-identify. You know, Just remember that they're taking their views into the field. Every single traffic stop, every single beating, every single shooting are all influenced by their own prejudices. So keep that in mind. That was here in North Carolina over in Ohio in Cuyahoga County. A former judge has been indicted for murdering his wife. From that story, it says, quote, Disgraced former judge Lance Mason on Tuesday pleaded not guilty to fatally stabbing his estranged wife, Aisha Fraser Mason, last month as she dropped off their children at a Shaker Heights home. Mason entered the plea via video arraignment from the Cuyahoga County Jail. Tuesday's hearing was Mason's first appearance in court since a grand jury handed up a six-count indictment charging the 51-year-old in the fatal November 17th attack. Mason's sister was inside the home with the couple's daughters at the time of the stabbing. She called 911 and told dispatchers that Mason stabbed Frazier and said she could hear the woman screaming outside. The children were screaming in the background, and Mason walked in and said, I'm so sorry, according to the recording. Mason is a former state lawmaker and Cuyahoga County judge who left the bench in 2015 after he was convicted of brutalizing his wife in front of their children in an attack that left her in need of facial reconstruction surgery. In that incident, Mason slammed Fraser's head against the dashboard and window of their SUV, then chased her when she got out of the car, struck her again, and bit her. The attack came as the family was on their way home from an aunt's funeral. The couple had split up months earlier, and Fraser told her husband in the car that she would not take him back unless he got anger management counseling. You know, shit like this, domestic violence, I have very little patience for, even as a defense attorney. And this type of situation is why so many women in abusive relationships don't leave, because when they do, it's very common for them to be murdered. So, you know, there, there's no bright line to this particular story. You know, it's good that the judge is being prosecuted, but we need to do something about domestic violence in the country and tweak how our laws treat this sort of thing. Because you basically have a judge who was convicted in 2015 of a pretty horrific attack, and he was allowed to be out to then murder this woman just a few years later. And it's pretty ridiculous. So that's in Ohio. Out of Oregon, we've got some stories there. In Hillsboro, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, Officers from the Hillsboro Police Department entered a Liberty High School classroom with their weapons drawn on Monday after receiving an erroneous report of an armed student in the classroom. The school went into a lockdown at approximately 9.15 in the morning on Monday as officers arrived. According to Hillsborough Police spokesman Eric Bundy, officers quickly determined there was no threat to the students. Hillsborough School District spokeswoman Beth Grazier said police were called after two students in one of the school's classrooms got into an argument. Another student in the class reportedly texted her mother about the altercation, and that mother called 911 saying she believed one of the students was armed. Several police officers responded to the scene Monday morning and entered the classroom with their weapons drawn. The incident was reportedly captured 
captured on video by a student. Sidebar, it was. That's in the story. Uh, the video appears to show Hillsborough police officers carrying rifles and handguns, addressing students who have their hands raised. No weapons were found on any of the students involved in the argument. The fight was verbal only, according to Principal Greg Timmons, and never turned physical. There is something wrong with this country. To have a verbal altercation, as you, if you want to call it that, basically a verbal argument, escalate to the point that you have armed police breaking into a classroom with their guns drawn, that's not normal. There's nothing normal about that, and it's terrifying for school kids, but it's fuck. I mean, it's just, I have no words. It's just something is seriously fucked up with how we handle things in this country. Uh, out of Portland, we find out that the mayor's office has said that you can go ahead and, if you're media, talk to the police as long as you sign a non-disclosure agreement and give the police the authority to dictate what you write. Yes, seriously. From that story, it says, quote, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler's communication staff asked a select group of reporters to sign non-disclosure agreements in order to gain access to the Portland Police Bureau's command staff during a right-wing protest on November 17th. An email exchange from November 14th obtained by Willamette Week via a public records request provides more insight into the terms of an offer by the mayor's office to allow selected reporters to enter the police's nerve center during the latest in a series of protests. The Portland Mercury first reported last month that a few reporters had been picked. No news organizations ultimately attended. In the emails between the mayor's communications director, Eileen Park, and a KGW reporter, Park offered exclusive access to the Portland Police Bureau's Incident Command Post, or ICP, and asked the TV station to sign an agreement to allow the city to dictate what it would publish. Park offered similar access to hand-picked reporters from the Oregonian and the Portland Tribune. Subquote, it's an effort to provide more access, transparency, and to show the public what goes into the decision-making and planning process prior to and during these protests, Park wrote. I'm going to do a sidebar here. It's not transparency when the government is dictating what is written. Uh, email continues, quote, but because a lot of what you will be hearing and observing is confidential, we will have to get an NDA signed by both you and your photographer, which our attorneys have drafted. Uh, the city did not provide a copy of the draft NDA in response to WW's record request. The offer included another key restriction. A police officer would decide what the reporter could tell the public. Subquote, Lieutenant Craig Dobson will be your liaison and can guide, can guide when and what you will be able to tweet and share, Park continued. This isn't journalism. It's propaganda. And on top of it, it likely violates the First Amendment because you're basically allowing access to the police, but you're doing it on a viewpoint basis. It's not viewpoint neutral because you are only allowed to publish the government line. You're not allowed to do that. You either wall off the police entirely, which is allowed, or you allow media in. You can't discriminate based on what they're going to write. So that's out of Portland. In Washington County, Oregon, we have a massive settlement uh, for a woman who died in jail in what was a truly sad story. It's ridiculous. 
Um, so this is the death of Madeline Pitkin, and the story says, quote, a federal judge has approved a $10 million judgment against Horizon Health, Washington County, and other defendants, settling a lawsuit brought by the parents of a 26-year-old woman who died pleading for medical help while detoxing from heroin in the Washington County Jail. Madeline Pitkin died on April 24th of 2014 on her seventh day at the jail after her arrest on a warrant and heroin possession charge. I'm going to note, she wasn't actually convicted of anything. She died innocent. From the story, continues, quote, The eight-figure judgment is the largest ever awarded against Horizon Health, the nation's largest for-profit medical provider for prisons and jails. Let me pause. It could be Corazon. I don't know. There's no accent over the O, so I'm pronouncing it like the cell phone company. We're just going to call it Horizon. If I'm wrong, so be it. Feel free to tweet me, but I doubt I'm going to correct it. Horizon uh, has faced multiple lawsuits nationwide that allege inadequate medical care similar to the Pitkin suit. Horizon Health failed to follow its own policies, which required, at a minimum, monitoring detox inmates every two hours and that they be taken to an emergency room or acute care facility if they were experiencing severe withdrawal symptoms. Instead, inmates like Madeline Pitkin were monitored just once every eight-hour shift, if at all. Horizon also understaffed its medical services at the jail to maximize its profit. Horizon's medical director at the jail, Dr. Joseph McCarthy, that's a fitting fucking name, uh, and the health services administrator, Mandy Forsman, were unaware of the policy governing inmate monitoring requirements. Forsman also had complained about understaffing at the jail and that the least credentialed staff were handling the sickest patients, according to depositions. Madeline Pitkin had made four written pleas for help that the medical staff mostly discounted or mishandled. She detailed her intensifying weakness on jail forms and twice wrote that she felt near death. Medical staff, meanwhile, repeatedly ranked her withdrawal symptoms as mild and nurses failed to track her low blood pressure. In her final request for help, Pitkin wrote, subquote, This is a third or fourth call for help. I haven't been able to keep food, liquids, meds down in six days. I feel like I'm very close to death. I can't hear. I'm seeing lights. I'm hearing voices. Please help me. Medical staff later that day sent Pitkin to the jail's medical unit. She was so dehydrated she couldn't provide a urine sample. She died there the next morning on the floor of a cell alone with a handwritten copy of the Lord's Prayer and the Serenity Prayer in her hand. Jesus Christ. An autopsy determined her cause of death was dehydration. You took this woman and you killed her because you wouldn't give her a fucking IV. That was all you had to do. Give her an IV and she'd have been fine. But instead, you let her die. She wasn't even convicted of a crime. She was arrested. And she ended up dying in the fucking jail. How we treat incarcerated people in this country is a goddamn travesty. I've said it repeatedly. It's still true. Uh, So that's out of Oregon. In Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, we have – this is an interesting story. So basically – the there's been several what they call critical incidents so things like officer involved shootings that have not led to charges and a grand jury was so frustrated by it they actually did a summary uh asking the courts to say hey fix some of this shit because the union president was interfering in several investigations from the story it says quote an investigation by an allegheny county grand jury found pittsburgh police failed to conduct thorough and transparent criminal investigations after two officer involved shootings in 2017 and found the police union president deliberately tried to block investigators according to a scathing report made public on friday 
The grand jury said in its 46-page report that Fraternal Order of Police Fort Pitt Lodge No. 1 President Robert Schwarzwelder acted with, subquote, deliberate malfeasance and, subquote, utter disregard for the policies and ethical standards of the police bureau following the January 22, 2017 fatal police shooting of a Larimer homeowner, as well as after a non-fatal officer-involved shooting in East Liberty in April of 2017. The union stopped investigators from gathering evidence after those shootings, and that conduct led to the, subquote, appearance of impropriety and what appeared to be a cover-up that involved multiple officers, the report said. It's super damning. Like, I, one of the um, folks on Twitter sent me a link to the actual grand jury report. Uh, it was on Google Docs. For some reason, I can't get it to load anymore. I don't know if it was taken down or what. Uh, but it was a very damning report from the grand jury. So we'll give you a link to that story. Out of Texas, we've got a couple different stories here. Uh, out of Laredo, we might remember in episode 82, we talked about a border patrol officer who was in the business of killing prostitutes for sport. Uh, he has been indicted officially, and prosecutors are going to seek the death penalty. In that story, it says, quote, Webb County prosecutors said Wednesday that they will seek the death penalty against Juan David Ortiz, the Border Patrol agent accused of killing four women in September. Uh, Chilo Alanez, Webb County District Attorney, made the announcement after a grand jury indicted Ortiz on account of capital murder, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, unlawful restraint, and evading arrest. Ortiz is the second Border Patrol agent to be indicted on capital murder charges just this year in Laredo. In June, Agent Ronald Anthony Burgos Avales was indicted on two counts of capital murder for killing his 27-year-old lover and their 20-month-old son. We talked about that guy in a prior episode as well. Uh, prosecutors are seeking the death penalty in that case also. Ortiz, 35, has been behind bars since his arrest on September 15th, held on a $2.5 million bond. He was initially charged by law enforcement with four counts of murder. They also charged him with aggravated assault and unlawful restraint for allegedly attempting to kill a fifth woman. That was the only reason he got caught. He had picked up a fifth prostitute. She managed to escape and notify police at a gas station, and that's how he got found out. Uh, Ortiz has killed Melissa Ramirez, on September 3rd, Claudine Ann Luera on September 13th, Giselda Alicia Hernandez and Nikki Enriquez both on September 14th. He was, quote, cleaning up the streets of Webb County, he said. Uh, so that's in Laredo. I guess we can call that good news. Uh, out of San Antonio, we have good news that is unambiguous good news. Uh, it was a very long time coming, but the San Antonio Four no longer have a criminal history. State District Judge Catherine Torres Stahl handed out orders Monday expunging the records of Elizabeth Ramirez, Cassandra Rivera, Christy Mayhew, and Anna Vasquez. They are all in their mid-40s. The women consistently maintained their innocence from that day 24 years ago when Ramirez's nieces, then aged 9 and 7, accused the women of brutalizing them while on a weekend visit with Ramirez, their aunt. Ramirez was convicted in 1997 and the other three in 1998 of aggravated sexual assault of a child. 
after the women served nearly 15 years in prison. One of the nieces publicly recanted. She said family members upset that her aunt had come out as a lesbian had told her to lie. She also said her father told her the same thing because he was upset that Ramirez had spurned his sexual advances. During court testimony in the aftermath of the recounting, it was also shown that faulty science helped support the charge of rape. The four women were exonerated by the state's highest criminal court in 2016, but as we talked about in prior episodes about collateral consequences, the story continues, quote, despite the exoneration, official records still showed the women's arrests and that they at one time had a felony conviction. Having a felony conviction can make it difficult to get employment, rent a place to live, or even travel. Abroad. With the expunction signed by Torres Stahl, the women's convictions are officially gone. So kudos to those four ladies. Sorry that they had to spend nearly two decades in prison to get to this point. Uh, out of Virginia in Patrick County, we have another racist self identifying uh, Alex McNabb a white supremacist podcaster who works as an emergency medical technician in Southern Virginia is under investigation by the state's department of health. A spokesperson for the department confirmed to HuffPost. McNabb 35 is a frequent co-host of the daily show, a popular neo-Nazi podcast on the show. He regularly tells stories about being an EMT, often referring to patients by racist slurs and comparing black patients to animals. An anonymous complaint was made on November 26th against McNabb, who works as an EMT in Patrick County, according to Marion Hunter, public relations coordinator for the Department of Health's Office of Emergency Medical Services. Uh, because it's a subquote open and active investigation, Hunter did not describe the nature of the complaint. McNabb's continued employment as an EMT, however, raises ethical and legal questions about whether an avowed racist and white nationalist can effectively make life and death decisions for patients of color, Jewish patients, and other minorities. No shit. Surprise, like an understatement of the fucking year. But here's the part that kills me. So this is a long story. We're going to give you a link to the whole thing. But what cracks me up is that the EMT company that he works for is Jeb Stewart Volunteer Rescue. Now, JEB is, a, is an acronym. It stands for James Ewell Brown. He was one of the high commanders of the Confederacy. Basically, he was a traitor that worked for the United States Army and then switched to sides. And this guy, it, 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 you know, I grew up in Virginia. I was born in Fredericksburg. I was raised in Virginia Beach. And the part that kills me is this guy is revered as some great cavalry commander. You know, cavalry are the folks on horses that have sabers and guns. Uh, this guy sucked. Like, he was not a particularly good general. He got caught by surprise at Brandy Station. He got outflanked at Gettysburg. He got beat at, I think it was Yellow Tavern. You know, but his he's just, we had, there's like this legend in Virginia that he's so great, and there's all kinds of shit in the state named after him. And his entire claim to frame is that he was pretty. His nickname was actually Beauty. He was considered a very attractive Southern gentleman. And that's why everyone loved him so much, because he was charismatic and a bunch of other shit. But the dude sucked as a general. And it blows my mind that we still have people named for a Confederate general in Virginia. It's no damn surprise a fucking neo-Nazi works for them. Uh, so that's out of the state of Virginia. Next door in West Virginia, in Jefferson County, uh, we have an officer who is being investigated for beating the shit out of a 16-year-old. 
Uh, that story says, quote, law enforcement agencies are probing the alleged police beating of a 16-year-old in the eastern panhandle, but police have investigated the conduct of one of the involved West Virginia troopers before. The West Virginia State Police's Professional Standards Section produced a, subquote, report of response to resistance or aggression regarding a 2016 clash between Trooper First Class Derek Walker and a 51-year-old woman. The report cleared Walker of wrongdoing without any statement from the woman or her medical records following the incident. The woman, Julie Hampstead, subsequently filed a lawsuit alleging that Walker dragged her by the arm and smashed her face into the side of a truck, breaking her glasses before pinning her down on the pavement and arresting her. In another incident, Walker seized more than $10,000 in cash from a couple in June without charging them with a crime. Their money was returned months later. The couple said they have filed a complaint against Walker regarding that incident. Walker, Trooper Michael Kennedy, and Berkeley County Sheriff's Deputy Austin Ennis were all suspended without pay after what Governor Jim Justice called the beating of a 16-year-old male in Martinsburg on November 19th. Justice first called attention to the altercation on November 29th and acknowledged existence of dash cam footage of the November 19th incident. He said the footage, subquote, shows the suspect being beaten by two troopers. Uh, so, folks, that is the state-by-state state criminal justice fuckery. Every now and again, we cover stuff in foreign countries, and we actually have three of them today, uh, one in Canada, one in France, and one in the United Kingdom. In Canada, out of Toronto, an officer ate some pot brownies that he took from a crime scene and tripped out so bad that he actually called 911 for help, or whatever the Canadian equivalent of 911 is. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a Toronto police officer who ate a marijuana-laced chocolate bar seized in a pot shop raid has pleaded guilty to attempting to obstruct justice. Constable Vittorio Dominelli says he is remorseful and ashamed of his actions on the evening of January 27th. I would be, too. Uh, Justice Mary Meisner says Dominelli is a, subquote, complete idiot for tampering with evidence. Crown attorney Philip Perlmutter, who read out an agreed statement of facts in court, says Dominelli took three hazelnut chocolate bars infused with cannabis oil from the raid. Perlmutter says Dominelli and another officer later ate one chocolate bar and became intoxicated in about 20 minutes, eventually radioing for help. Constable Jamie Young and Dominelli allegedly assisted in the execution of a search warrant at Community Cannabis Clinic, a marijuana dispensary in the city's West End. The charges allege that Young later, subquote, failed to account for a chocolate hazelnut bar infused with cannabis oil seized during the search. About two hours later, Dominelli made a call for assistance over police radio, claiming that he felt he was going to pass out. Dominelli used the 1033 police code, normally reserved to indicate an officer is in serious trouble. Responding officers said Young and Dominelli, subquote, appeared to be in distress when they were found. They were both taken to a hospital. One of the responding, God, this is like a fucking Keystone Cops type thing. Story continues, quote, one of the responding officers slipped on ice during the call for help and also had to be transported to the hospital. Dominelli has resigned from the Toronto Police Department. We'll give you a link to that story. In France, out of Paris, we have the first rule of Fisk, French edition. French police will continue to do dumb 
shit even when they were being recorded. And this is part of the same protest that we mentioned last week, except this time there's video of them having a bunch of school kids on their knees facing a wall with their hands behind their heads. From that story, it says, quote, Scenes of school children kneeling with their hands behind their heads has triggered outrage as France braces itself for more violent protests this weekend. Footage which has sparked condemnation by politicians shows the pupils on the ground as riot police yell orders at them. It is feared that the viral videos could further inflame the yellow vest protests which have led to the worst rioting Paris has seen in decades. The students were detained by police in the Paris suburb of Monte-la-Jolie, an unrest that has spread to dozens of schools during three weeks of anti-government demonstrations. So that's in France. And then out of the United Kingdom, in London, we have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. And in this case, these guys like compiled a video of police running over thieves on mopeds. Uh, and they just they think it's cool. Uh, story says, quote, police have released dramatic footage showing officers ramming cars into criminals riding mopeds and sending them tumbling into the road. Scotland Yard said the newly adopted subquote tactical contact strategy is in widespread use in London after a rise in robberies, phone snatches and acid attacks using scooters. Moped-enabled crime has plummeted by 36% in the capital year over year since the methods were rolled out. Officers feared being jailed or sacked if moped riders were injured during high-speed chases in the past, while criminals have taken their helmets off in the belief that it will prevent a pursuit. But the government has backed new legal protections for officers, and the Metropolitan Police said it targets moped criminals, subquote, even when they ride dangerously, discard their helmets, and disguise themselves in the belief that this will prevent pursuit and their capture. So a few things here. One, is the tactic the reason for the crime drop? We don't know. It seems more uh, correlation than causation there. It's also pretty fucking brutal that you're going to run someone over to stop what is, in effect, a property crime. And also, you know, they mentioned mopeds have been stolen as part of this. Uh, Well, when you run a moped over, it damages the moped. So the person whose property was taken, they're going to get back a broken up piece of shit because of police activity. There are other ways that you can solve crimes than running people over. Don't know what would work best. I'm not in Britain. But I got to imagine for a country that's been around for 2,000-something years, they can figure something out. Uh, So, folks, that is going to do it for this particular episode. That is all of the criminal justice fuckery here and abroad for this particular week. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating or written review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, wherever it is. Please rate us, write us, do all those things. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, hope all of you have a blessed week, and we'll talk to you next Monday. Take care. Mm-hmm.